When I was a kid, I, uh, like every kid, loved my toys. One of my favorite things when I was a kid were Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars. And they've been around for a while. All the way back to when I was a kid, <laughs> they had Hot Wheels and Matchbox. Those were some of my favorite things, and I can still remember being eight, nine years old and going to the Bangor Mall. We lived about 10 minutes from the Bangor Mall. Going to the Bangor Mall, going to KB Toys. That doesn't exist anymore either, but uh, going to KB Toys and looking at the display, there was a display behind the cash register with all the matchboxes and Hot Wheels that they had. I can remember going there sometimes with my parents and my mom or my dad would say, you can pick one out if you want, I'll buy it for you. And looking at that, deciding which one I wanted and getting it, at that time they came in these little tiny boxes and taking it home and opening it up and playing with it. And I remember thinking, this is the best thing ever. Having this little car, being able to play with it on the floor with my brother. Oh, we had so much fun. And then when I became a teenager, I got my license. I didn't have the money to buy a car, but I got my license. And my dad used to let me drive his car. And I thought, man, this is great. This is way better than playing with my matchboxes on the car. I'm driving the car. And then I saved up my money, and I bought a car. It was a piece of junk. It was a 1963 Dodge Coronet with rust holes all through it. My brother helped me patch it. Fortunately, it was a really, really dull, ugly, faded gray color, so the primer just blended right in. And I thought, this is even better than driving my dad's car. I'm driving my own car. Of course, I didn't dare to drive it more than about 20 miles from home, but nonetheless, I saved up my money, and I bought a better car, a car that I could actually go places. And Melody was going to school in Washington, D.C., and I remember getting in my car and driving all the way from New Brunswick all the way to Washington, D.C. to visit Melody, and I thought, this this is the best. You know, it's just an illustration, but in some ways, we could liken that comparison between a Hot Wheels and a real car to our salvation and our eternity with Christ. We like to talk about our salvation. We like to think about it. And we, and we certainly think about what it will be like to be with God for eternity in heaven. But certainly, we cannot fully understand what that will be like, can we? Because we haven't experienced it. We don't really know what it's going to be like. It's hard for us to grasp what God has in store for us. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes to open our eyes to the reality of our salvation and the reality of our destiny in heaven. Now, last week when I spoke to you from James, I said that James was not the James that was a disciple or the other James who was a disciple. Apparently, James around Christ was just like Joe around here. We've got like five of them. And that was the same with James's. They were everywhere. 
But this Peter who wrote 1 Peter and 2 Peter is the Peter that you're thinking about, the disciple. We think about Peter, what do we think? Peter was the guy that was always talking. He was always doing something. He was brash and he was bold and he was, he was kind of impetuous. You never knew what was going to happen, what was going to come out of his mouth. This is the same Peter who, despite all of the assurances that he gave to Jesus and the rest of the disciples, at the very moment, at the very moment when he could have chosen to stand for Jesus and with Jesus at his trial, he cursed and blasphemed and denied Jesus and ran away. This is the guy. But after the Holy Spirit came, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit indwelled Peter and empowered Peter. And Peter stood up and preached a sermon and 3,000 people got saved. And a few days later, God told him to preach another sermon. He preached again and 2,000 more people got saved. And if you read the book of Acts, Peter was transformed from this unpredictable unreliable guy to a man who was willing to be beaten and threatened and imprisoned for the sake of Jesus Christ. This Peter is the guy who in Acts chapter 5, when he was warned, if you keep preaching, we will take your lives, he said, we need to obey God rather than men. That's this Peter. Eventually, Peter did give his life for the sake of Jesus Christ. When he was arrested and tried, secular historians tell us, he was condemned to be crucified on a cross, just like Jesus was. Peter, ever humble because of what he had seen the Lord Jesus do, the transformation he had made in his life, and the way that he had worked through him over the years, said, you're not going to crucify me like my Lord and Savior. And he requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. See, Peter lived in a desperate time to be a Christ follower. Nero was the emperor. Now, we don't have time to go into all of Nero's misdeeds, but suffice it to say, when he thought she was a threat, Nero murdered his own mother, and he tortured Christ followers for sport. And Peter is writing this book to those who have been scattered because of that persecution. He knew what it took to be faithful. He knew that we needed to not lose hope in order to live an obedient Christian life. And I want to say the same thing for us. That is that even in difficult times, we are called to live obedient, victorious lives. Our faith is tested. It's exposed by trials. And the key is understanding our hope in Christ. And the key is understanding, my friends, that the best is yet to come. And I want to read seven verses for you this morning, and then we're going to look at each one for just a few moments. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start in verse 3. Let me just read the passage before we break it down. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who, God's pow- who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have seen him, not seen him rather, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Now, there's so much there for us to take in, and sometimes you hear Tim and I say this. We say, wow, man, we could preach three sermons on this. Well, there's seven verses, and I think we could do seven sermons on this if we needed to or wanted to, but I want to just break this down a little bit for you, and I have to give a little bit of a disclaimer. Um, If you're one of the people out there, I say one because I only might be one or two, but if you're one of the people out there who likes it, When I tell you what some of the Greek words are and I break it down and I share with you the shades of meaning, then you're in for a real treat today. All the rest of you, I'm sorry, (laughs) you're going to have to hang in there. I I hope that it will be worth it. But there is so much here that's important that we need to see that Peter tells us about. And he starts in those three first three verses by just giving us the facts. Okay, just the facts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed means to celebrate. It means to celebrate the Lord Jesus and thank God for His mercy, to praise Him and to honor Him. This is often lost in our self-focus. Okay, And if you can't hear me and don't remember what I just said a second ago, then you're proving my point. We're often lost in our self We come to church here. Sometimes we joke about it, you know, you get here to church and you pull in. If you've got a car full of people or a car full of kids, and you say, okay, now we're at church. Now, stop. Why? Because real life happened between home and church. Right? Because your kids were punching each other in the back seat. Or if you're married, you and your spouse were arguing about what to have for lunch after you get home or what to do this afternoon or whatever it is. And, and we come to church sometimes, we come to the worship time, and we're lost in our focus. We're thinking about all kinds of things that are going on. i got to tell you, nothing encourages me or sometimes discourages me more than when we come together and are singing. Sometimes we're here, and I can tell that everybody is present in the moment. I, I, I look around, depending on how we're sitting or what of the dozen venues we've ever met in, wherever we happen to be, and I can see some of you, and I see people singing, and I see the joy in your face, and I say, this is awesome. And then sometimes I look around, and somebody looks like somebody beat you over the head with a baseball bat, and you only have one eye open and you're limping and you're thinking like, I would rather be anywhere but here right now. Why does that happen? It's because we're not thinking about what we're supposed to be thinking about when we come to worship. Peter says, celebrate our God. Why? Why should we celebrate our God? Well, for one thing, His great mercy gives us new life. 
His mercy gives us new life. We're, we're saved, he says, to a living hope, an expectation of life. How does that happen? Peter says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word through means to bring across. There are some wonderful verses in Colossians that tell us that the power of Jesus Christ and His life and His resurrection has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His dear Son. That's what the word through means there, to bring across. Jesus Christ has brought us as sinners from death to life. And not only that, but look at verse 2 to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not only have we been given life, but we've been given an inheritance. We know even in our culture that inheritance comes through family relationship. Gavin is my only son, and my will states that when I am gone, Gavin is going to inherit the vast Booker fortune and all of my holdings will be his. Why? Because he's a great guy? No, because he's my son. It's the family relationship. That's what Peter says for us. Not only have we been given life, but we have this inheritance. Notice he describes it for us. It's imperishable. It's indestructible. It's undefiled, that means it's unstained or untainted. It's unfading, it's undiminishable. I think about that sometimes, and maybe you do too. If you're getting to the age like me where you're starting to get older and you're thinking about what's going to happen when I retire, will I, will I have enough to live on when I can't work any longer, and you're worried about the stock market and it goes up and down, let me give you a, a just a little tip, don't look at the stock market. Don't watch that. That'll, that'll drive you crazy. Why? Because one day you have this much, and the next day you have that much. It diminishes. But Peter says our inheritance doesn't diminish, and it is kept, he says, kept in heaven for us, literally guarded. So understand this. With our salvation comes this inheritance, this gift and the gift is eternity in this place of perfection, free from pain, free from grief and sorrow and death. And of course, by very definition, eternity means it doesn't end. It doesn't end. I don't know how often you think about this. I think about it, it seems like, fairly often. But everything on this earth ends. Absolutely every single thing on this earth ends. Even the very best thing ends. Sometimes you're having a good day. You're out doing something that you enjoy or you're with someone that you really enjoy being with. It's gorgeous out. You're having a good time. And what do you say? Man, I wish this would never end. Everything in this world ends. But this does not. And it has your name on it. I always think of that when I read this verse. It's kept in heaven for you. For you. Reserved. 
verse 3 says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Who is kept by God's power? Well, those who are born again, if we go all the way back. We're kept by His power. See this? We're being guarded by His power. This is a word that, if you remember several weeks ago when we were in the book of Romans, Tom drew our attention to. It's the word dunamis. It means the supernatural power of God. We're being guarded. It means to be, to be protected by a military sentinel. Your life, your eternity, your future is being protected by the supernatural power of God. Just like a military facility with a battalion of soldiers out front, only far better because it's God. It's God's power. Now, the reason why I think this is so important is because sometimes we have a misconception about our salvation and about our eternity, and we think that our eternity is maintained by our faith or kept by our faith. Well, as long as I keep trusting in God, then I know I have eternity in heaven. I believe it, God. Please hear me. I believe it. I trust you. Your eternity, your salvation, your destiny in heaven is not kept by your faith. I'm very thankful for that because my faith wavers. But God's power never does. If you're reading or following along, you say, well, it says by God's power we're being guarded, but it still says through faith. Why does Peter say through faith if it's God's power that keeps us? He says through faith because the believing sinner trusts that God would do this. God's power is what keeps me, but I believe that He will do it. And that's what gives my heart assurance. When you put these two things together, I want you to see here that not only does God guard the inheritance for us, but He guards us for the inheritance. He's not only holding the inheritance, but He's holding us. This is the security of our salvation. It's God's power. Now I want you to notice this in the last part of verse 3. It's extremely important. He says this salvation God is ready to fully reveal in the last time. Now there are two reasons why this phrase is so important. Ready to fully reveal in the last time. First of all is the word ready. The word ready means prepared. It means all of the necessary preparation has been done. I think that's reassuring. Take a moment this morning and think about the times when you have worked with a procrastinator. Okay? Just I know we always say when we're up here preaching, don't think about other people, think about yourself. But I'm giving you permission. Think about somebody right now. Go ahead. Close your eyes. Who is it? That guy just drives me nuts. He's never ready. He's never prepared. He says he's going to do something, but, but we, time goes on and on, and we get closer and closer and closer, and I'm worried if he's going to do it. Why is procrastination such a big deal? What does it matter if I do it this week or next week? Well, next week, the stuff that you need to do what needs to be done might not be available, right? So we do things ahead of time. We get prepared. And that's what Peter says. 
We have no worries about this with God. We don't have to sit at night. We don't have to lay awake in our beds and say, is God really going to do this? Because it's ready. It's all ready. A number of times we've looked at passages of Scripture which tell us very clearly that since before the beginning of time, it has been God's plan to redeem you, to save you. This has always been His purpose. The second reason I want you to see why this statement is so important, ready to be revealed in the last time, is wrapped up in the word revealed and what that means. Now, you all know this word. Everybody here knows this Greek word. Now, I know that you know a few because I've taught them to you. People come up to me and say them. They come up and say, homologumina. I remember, now half of them don't remember what that means, but they remember that I said homologumina. Well, this one you already know. You don't need me to teach it to you. You just don't realize it. The word revealed here is the word apocalypto. You recognize that word, right? Apocalypto. It's our word apocalypse. Now, what do you think of when I say the word apocalypse? You think of disaster, right? Disaster. The world is ending. Everything has gone crazy. Maybe you picture old beat-up cars and trucks with steel plates welded on the sides of them and a 50 cal mounted on the top, right? Like Mad Max or something. That's the apocalypse. Well, that's actually the meaning that we have put on the word apocalypse in our culture when we use it in the English language. But that's not what apocalypto means. Apocalypto means to uncover or to reveal or to make plain the things that are hidden. And that's how Peter uses it. And notice how he uses it or what he describes with it. He describes our salvation is ready to be revealed. You see, in the last days, when all is revealed, when the apocalypto comes and it is revealed, we're going to finally see our salvation for everything that it is. We're going to see with our eyes what we have hoped for. And we probably don't think about it this way very much as Christ followers, but let me tell you something. For the believer in Jesus Christ, the apocalypse is going to be wonderful. It's going to be fantastic because we're finally going to see everything that we've been hoping, hoping for. Jesus Christ is going to reveal it to us. and We're going to see what he has promised. Now, of course... Plenty of other things are going to be revealed then too because when, when Christ takes the cover off, he's going to take the cover off the whole thing. And so we're going to see the world's sin. We're going to see the rebellion. We're going to see God's judgment of that rebellion and all those who have rejected him. All of that is going to be uncovered as well. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, the apocalypse is going to be fantastic because we're going to see 
what He has promised us. And those are the facts of our amazing salvation, this incredible inheritance, our security, all because of God's power will be revealed to us. Those are the facts. Now, I just want you to very quickly here see the reaction. What should our reaction to all of this be? Look at verse 6. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What is your reaction supposed to be when you see, when you read this and you understand, you hear somebody describe it the way that I have, what your great salvation is going to be, this wonderful inheritance. What is your reaction? You rejoice. Yeah, I get it. I get it, Mike. Jeez, we've read these before. I know. Rejoice. Have joy. I get it. I'm happy. I'm thankful. Guess what? You don't get it. You don't get it. Because this word means to exalt. It doesn't mean to be thankful. Now, should we be thankful? Yes, we should be thankful for what Christ has done for us. But that's not what this word means. It means to exalt. And are you ready? Because I'm going to tell you what this Greek word literally means. Are you ready for this? You're not ready for it. I can tell you're not ready. I'm going to tell you what this word means. Do you know what it means? It means much leaping. I'm serious. It means much leaping. It means this. Woohoo! That's what it means. Back in 2004, all of those of us long suffering Red Sox fans had all of our wishes and dreams come true, right, Ern? I can remember we had just moved here a few months before, and I can remember down at the log house, we were renting from Alma, and we had a little TV upstairs in our bedroom, and it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and Gavin was 6, and he was sleeping downstairs, and Melody was trying to sleep, and I was sitting on the edge of the bed, and I was watching, and when they won, I was like, yes, yes, I was jumping up and down, Melody's like, you're going to wake the baby I'm like, I don't care because I'm so excited. I was so happy. About what? About some stupid baseball game. But that's how happy I was. That's what this word means. This is an appropriate reaction to the knowledge of what God has done and has waiting for us. And my friends, listen to me. I'm not being irreverent. This is accurate. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm telling you this is what the word means. This is what Peter is saying. And most of us look like we've been soaking in sour pickle brine when we talk about what God has done for us. Know what God has given you and rejoice about it. Even though now, Peter says, for a little while, you suffer. Listen to me, folks. You know me well enough to know that I am a realist. I am not standing here and saying, you should jump up and down and be thankful for what God has done for you, and that will make all the pain of life go away. You know that's not what I'm talking about. 
This doesn't eliminate the reality of life and pain. This is how we deal with the pain. Because we know that this is not the end. This is how we deal with it. Peter says we've been grieved by various trials. We have felt the pain. There's no doubt that our lives are painful. Peter says in the middle of it we rejoice because we know we don't have to deal with this forever. Why, God? Why do you let this happen? Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These things happen. The pain of this life happens to prove the genuineness of your faith. God does not want to hear about your faith. He wants to see it. And yes, Peter says, it's tested by fire. What do you think Peter was thinking when he was hanging upside down on that cross and the blood was running out of his body and he knew he was dying and he was in excruciating pain? What do you think he was thinking? He was rejoicing because he knew what God had done for him. I just want to tell you this, folks. As we wrap this up in the next couple of minutes, I want you to see that there's an even more important reason that our faith is tested and why the tested genuineness of it matters because it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the apocalypto of Jesus. There's lots of people in this world today who know who Jesus Christ is. And they mock him, and they curse him, or they ignore him. But I want to tell you something. When he is revealed, when Jesus Christ is revealed to this world, and the trials that we have undergone, undergone, the pain that we have suffered, our dependence on him is going to shine light and honor on the magnificence of Jesus Christ. You see, this ultimately isn't even about you and me. It's about Jesus. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We rejoice with joy. Guess what? This is the same word. Much leaping. The same thing. Peter says we rejoice with joy. Now, I don't know if anybody's paying attention to this or not. But he says, rejoice with joy. And you may be thinking, well, what in the world other kind of rejoicing is there? Rejoice with joy. Why does he say with joy? Well, I think he says it for a very important reason. Because the word joy 
is the word kara, C-H-A-R-A. The word grace is kara, C-H-A-R-I-S. They're almost the exact same word, joy and grace. And I think what Peter is telling us, that when we rejoice, we do so with an awareness of the amazing grace of God. Joy, if I can describe it for you, joy is, is grace recognized. Do you recognize it? Do you see it? And see what God has done for you? Peter says it, it's almost inexpressible. We give him the glory. We recognize his power and his majesty. What God is calling us to, friends, what Peter is calling us to here is to stand before God in awe because of what he has done for us. I can't even express what God has done for us. That's what Peter is talking about. Can I ask you this morning, for those of you that are here, I don't... It's not really raining. Even if you're in your cars this morning, would you stand with us? We're going to sing together. Everybody that's out here is going to stand up. If you're in your car, you won't melt. Stand up. Let's give him glory this morning. Let's rejoice in our understanding of what he has done for us. Because the best is yet to come. In 1739, Charles Wesley decided to write a hymn to celebrate one year of being a Christ follower. And he wrote these words, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Now sometimes when we sing that, we think it'll be so great when we have a thousand people to sing it. And that would be great, but that's not what Charles Wesley was writing. You know what he was writing? He said, I want to praise God so much, I wish I had a thousand mouths to do it. That is the spirit of this song. Now, we're going to sing it together this morning. We're going to sing it a little bit differently than Charles Wesley sang it in 1739. But let's rejoice together in what God has done for us. Now we have to live our lives like that. It's great to be together and sing like this. But now we have to live it. That's what Peter says, the obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of our souls. The word outcome is the same word we saw last week in James 5 when James talked about the purpose of the Lord. Tell us. It means that it extends in every section that extends, every moment that goes by, we understand just a little bit more like a telescope. When I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior decades ago, I didn't understand all that salvation meant. I understand a little bit more of it now, but I still don't understand it all. But I trust Him, and I'm kept by His power. And I pray that the tested genuineness of my faith will shine honor on the magnificence of Christ when He is revealed. That's why we're here. That's why we're tested. How about you? This is how I deal with the pain of my life. This is how you deal with the pain of your life. That we would rejoice 
and stand in awe before God because of what he has for us. Let's do it together and show this community what it means to truly trust Christ. Father, thank you so much for the grace that gives us salvation. This is more than we can comprehend truly when we do pause to think about it. It's inexpressible. And yet it is what you have called us to. Not only are we kept, but you are keeping our inheritance for us. And at the apocalypto, the revealing of our salvation and the revealing of Jesus Christ, I pray that we would honor his magnificence by the tested genuineness of our faith. Father, I pray that we would live our lives with rejoicing. Go with us, Lord. Strengthen us. Cause us to humble ourselves before you and trust you even more as each day passes that we might understand what you have for us. Thank you for all of your blessings. Thank you for this piece of ground. Thank you for allowing us to be here this summer and fall. Thank you for what is to come here on this piece of property in the coming year. And we pray that you will continue to use us as your children in this community throughout the rest of this year. In Christ's name, amen.